This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg and this show is with the extraordinarily talented Zoe Norton Lodge. More about Zoe in a moment. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you to everybody that is supporting the show at Patreon, patreon.com slash O-S-H-E-R, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash O-S-H-E-R. All the people that support me there, uh, five bucks a month, as little as five bucks a month can get you access to exclusive episodes. And I'm experimenting with an exclusive podcast feed that will feature updates, possibly more frequently than a weekly update as the one that I'm doing right now. Uh, so if you'd like to be a part of that, you can not only get those exclusive episodes, but a check-in more than well once a week from me. Uh, you can uh, find that at patreon.com slash Osher for as little as five bucks a month. I do like to give away the entirety of the current set of exclusive episodes to one person that does rate the show on iTunes because iTunes ratings help me in the iTunes charts, help more people find out about the show. And that is going to the username Solid Liquid Gas. I wonder what state you were in when you wrote that. Ha, see what I did there? <laughs> Science. Never mind. Uh, the rating is very kind. If you like conversations with Richard Fadler, you'll love this podcast. The only difference is Osher puts more of himself in the podcast. I only found it not long after Osher started Breakfast Radio in Brisbane by complete accident. It's been a wonderful year of podcasting. While I might not have known the guests before the podcast, they've all been interesting, informative, and entertaining. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Solid Liquid Gas. Please send me an email. Send us your email at gmail.com and I will send you the current crop of exclusive episodes. Uh, you can always email me, send us your email at gmail.com. I've been getting some great podsies. Uh, that is a photograph taken with your phone that you were listening to the podcast on at the time you're listening to the podcast. It's a fantastic way to, uh, I guess, you know, show me what is happening in your world, help you check in with me. This is a two way street. It's a beautiful part about this kind of broadcasting. Uh, yeah, just send it to me. Send us your email at gmail.com. Kylie sent me a fantastic one. I think I put it on uh, Instagram or Twitter sometime through the week. Um, 
as she was driving across the Hay Plain between Sydney and Adelaide, or Adelaide and Sydney, I can't remember which direction she was going, but it's flat, and there's a lot of Australia in the photo. Not a lot of nothing. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty great. Um, I did get asked this week if you can't leave an iTunes review because you're an Android. Um, if you can't leave an iTunes review because you're an Android, that's okay. You are using the what will become the dominant operating system. Google will win. We all know that. That's fine. Uh, but just tell someone about the show. Tell your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, whoever you meet at Christmas lunch. If you do celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever you celebrate this time of year, just let them know about the show and um, you know, show them how to download it on their phone. That would do me a great, great service. Uh, to check in this week, I uh, the very kind people at Fitbit sent me a Fitbit, which is nice. Um... And uh, the good thing about a Fitbit is you can, you know, go, oh, I've been active today. The bad thing about a Fitbit is you wear it to sleep and it tells you how much you haven't been sleeping. Well, that's what at least does in my case. It goes, you were in bed for seven and a half hours. You were awake for 48 minutes, two minutes here, three minutes there. I don't sleep very well. I'm not sleeping very well at all. I'm about two weeks out from my wedding. And uh, how do I put this? If you have paid for a wedding, if you've ever paid for a wedding, try to imagine... Try to imagine this. You're caught in a blizzard. You're in a little cottage, and it's just you and your family. And the only way to survive is, is to make a fire. But the only thing that you have to burn to make that fire is cash. So you light a fire using money to start the fire, and then you just start throwing money on the fire to keep your family warm so they don't die. But it's your money. And so you're like, I want everyone to stay alive, but this is all my money. But then the fire gets out of control. And you think, crikey, I need a fire hose. So you call the fire department and they turn up. Uh, but instead of spraying water on the fire, the fire hose is connected to your bank account. And the fire hose just sprays money, like but a huge volume. So you're trying to put out the money fire by spraying money on it. But then the fire gets too big and engulfs the whole house. And you have to do a water bomb from one of those big bushfire planes. But instead of dropping an Olympic pool of water onto the cash fire that was burning out of control, even after you sprayed it with more cash, the belly of the plane is filled with every last dolly you've saved. And with the flick of one button, you watch all of your money dump on this massive blaze in an effort to bring all that spending under control. That is what paying for a wedding is like. That's a best way I can possibly put it to you. <laughs> Luckily, we also settled on buying this apartment <laughs> three weeks ago, isn't it? <gasps> it's okay. My mentor told me to just remember what you're grateful for. And I'm grateful for many things. I'm grateful for food. I'm grateful for the clean water that comes out of my tap, the two feet I swung over my bed this morning, a flushing toilet. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the my gorgeous stepdaughter that rolled out of bed about 10 minutes ago, 10 to noon. I'm grateful for the amount of family I was around last night for a 60th birthday. I'm grateful for all the guys that took me out for my Bucks weekend, which was far more tame than the last one. There's a lot of things I'm grateful for. I'm really, really grateful for a lot of things. So... If I don't think about how much money this is all costing and I just think about what it really is, which is a way to connect with Audrey and my immediate community of friends and family or family and friends, it's going to be worth absolutely every cent. But this week has been an interesting one. I don't know if you can relate to this because as the wedding approaches, as the stress goes higher, I do feel myself getting more and more into robot mode. And, and what that is, it's like I'm the pilot inside one of those big Pacific Rim robots. 
um, like a little version of me is safe controlling this massive outer shell, but I am unable to touch or feel anything. I can just tell the body what to do and say and move, but I can't actually appreciate any senses of, of touch and feel and smell and emotion. It's pretty strange. And I'm not going to lie, I am a little concerned about what might happen during the ceremony, during the actual wedding ceremony. So I spoke to my psychologist and she suggested, and I'm kind of glad she did, she's asked me to get married with no shoes on so I can feel the grass between my toes, so I can try and connect a little more intensely with what's happening. I might, I might burn some incense or something as well, just something to help bring me into the moment a bit more because I, I, I don't want to miss this, you know? I wonder if people who have regular neurotransmitter structures wonder what's going on when I try and describe this kind of stuff. Because to a normal person, some you being there would, well, well, you're there. It's like, well, no, that's not exactly, you know, if you're there, you're clearly experiencing it. No, it's sometimes it's like if I'm experiencing something very intense, sometimes it's like I'm watching it, but I'm not actually there. It's very odd. So hopefully I'm going to feel the grass beneath my feet and look Audrey in the eye and, and hold her hand and feel the skin under my fingers and and really do my very best to be there. But I'll, you know, I'll fill you in. Fill you in about all that when it happens. Uh, right. Oh, my guest today. I'm very excited to tell you about my guest today. She's a very important person to me. Zoe Norton Lodge is her name. She's a published author. She's an actor. She's a storyteller. And she's from... Sydney, Australia. She's one of the people behind the wildly successful Story Club, which happens in Sydney at the Giant Dwarf Theatre, which is operated by The Chaser. And you can also hear the Story Club. If you can't get to the shows, you can hear the Story Club on the Story Club podcast, which you'll find within the podcast playing app that you are listening to this on. Zoe's also a performer and a presenter and a writer on the current affairs show called The Checkout, which is on the ABC here in Australia, and that's also produced by the team from The Chaser. Zoe has a big role in my life because it's it's Zoe that allowed me to be able to first speak about my run-ins with psychosis in a public way, in a format and a forum that was safe and that made sense. And she allowed me to go on stage at Story Club and, and, and tell tell that story and because of that many different things and opportunities and and opportunities for advocacy and you know a lot of people got a lot out of that conversation that I had um so it's because of Zoe that I was allowed to do that and so uh she's very special to me uh she's incredibly intelligent uh she's quite wonderful to be around and she's very very funny very funny Zoe's book is called Almost Sincerely. It's available wherever you buy books. And you can follow her on Twitter at Zoe NL, Zoe Norton Lodge, Zoe NL. That's where she is on Twitter. Let her know that you heard her here. Just send her a tag and go, hey, I really like that. So enjoy this. It's a good one. It's a long one, this one. Uh, enjoy Zoe and I getting hassled by my dog, Frank, in my living room at my old house in Bondi just before we moved out. Enjoy the show. I'm so happy you're here in our home that we're about to leave. It's so pretty. It has such an amazing view. And we're about to put an incredibly... You just try and... We got given these orchids last night by some guests that came over. Oh, wow. And 
The first thing that Audrey said when she saw it. Oh, can I guess? Yes. It looks like vaginas. That's exactly what Audrey said. Yeah. <laughs> you said thank you for the vagina flowers. <laughs> Sorry, they just look like... They also look quite veiny. We were given them by some very, very proper, proper um, Bellevue Hill slash... Uh, Kind of garlic, think, yeah. double bay type ladies. Not only like just for, you know, obviously, they're a bit hard to describe exactly how vaginal they look, but it's not only just the colour, no. which is like that perfect, like there's nothing else is really that colour, but also like the kind of, the veininess of it looks very like um, bo- bodily. On a, on, a, on a white lady we're talking, this colour. Yeah, what what the most disturbing thing to me is like the sort of stained yellow bit down at that particular part where if you'd gotten, I don't know, anyway, they're beautiful flowers. They are so beautiful flowers and the ladies that came over last night were just so, so delightful, so delightful. We did a, uh, I did a uh, MC to gig for this, uh, the Cure Brain Cancer Foundation mm-hmm. and they had an auction and Dr. Charlie Teo, who was as close to a rock star brain surgeon as you're ever going to get, totally auctioned off come and stand in the theatre with me while I do brain surgery <gasps> for two people. And it went for 17 grand. Oh, my gosh. All right. And they said, have you got anything in auction? And we were waiting in line. And Audrey clocked all the people. It was very millennial, the crowd. Audrey clocked all the people taking, you know, photos on their iPhones from about 20 metres away. And I'm just some sort of by then some sort of digitised pixelated version of me. But by the time you zoom in that much. And she goes, you should auction off people coming around to our house to watch The Bachelorette. Come and sit on our couch and watch The Bachelorette with us. And I wow. said, Audrey, that's a great idea. $11,500. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I wasn't there because I would pay that to come watch The Bachelorette with you. <laughs> it was pretty fun. I um, We had them all here. And, and oh there was gosh. cheese. There was so much cheese. Wow. It was super, super good. What was, what was the monster cheese, honey? Le Dauphin. Le Dauphin. Le Dauphin. Um, it was the kind of cheese that once you let it up to room temperature... It just kind of goes Wicked Witch of the West. Oh, that stuff's amazing. Yeah. Um, I um, Speaking of The Bachelorette, I, I can't remember if I – I think I did tell you this. Like we did a parody of The Bachelorette on the checkout. Yes. Um, and I got a message from my costume designer who did an amazing job. I was like, I was like, look, I know this isn't strictly what happens on The Bachelorette, but I was like, I need a different dress for every shot and I need to be drinking champagne in every shot and everyone else needs to be drinking champagne in every shot. That was my rules. And my costume designer messaged me and was like, are you sitting down? The Bachelorette is wearing your dress from your fake Bachelorette that you wore first, (laughs) which I thought was amazing. And I really now want to do a who wore it better, although I know it's not going to end well for me, but I still want to do it anyway. Make a little, make a little side by side. Oh my goodness! And what broke my heart so much about that is you called me and told me after the fact, and I told you I could have done it. I, you think that broke your heart? I just was. I almost cried. Like I'm gonna actually do it again and hold you to it. Um, the funniest thing about that was like, is we got all models to do it. Yeah, I mean. You know, like the best, what I found when we've done this before is if you want a model, cast topless waiters. They are so good because they perform all the time. They're good at talking to anyone. They know how to do their role and they're not afraid to do anything. They don't wear tops all the time. So they're happy to do whatever. So um, that's my tip for anyone who's looking to, if you want a model, consider 
the topless waiter market. Are also, how fun. Are you talking, I want to model for uh, comedy skit purposes? Well, if you want to cast, if you're a casting person and you want to cast a model, just consider, you know, broadening your sort of search out to topless waiters. Is this like kind of how Game of Thrones uses actual real porn actresses for all the brothel scenes? It's so funny that because I always think that uh, like watching stuff like um, The Sopranos and in the, in the Butterbing there's all the girls and I'm like, is this the worst job for an actress or the best job for a stripper? <laughs> Because it's one of those things. <laughs> I'm going to say best job for a stripper. Which, great, fabulous. I hope they got paid tremendously then. All in dollar bills. Yes, yes, all just delivered straight to the bank of the panties. And the residual checks all arrive in them. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapped in a G-string. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah, residual. I have to sneeze. Oh, you, you like I have to sneeze. And it's going to be kind of icky. I've gone for the tissue beforehand. Amazing. <laughs> Nice. Sydney's cloud. Sydney's clouded in this kind of back-burning funk. We're in the bit just before summer, so they're mm. burning bits of the bush around us, so that the bush around us doesn't burn mm. in the summer. Mm. And that causes, from my understanding, quite a lot of actual fires. Like, like how did that fire start? Back-burning. I, I, the, the wildest thing I heard about bushfires was from uh, the poet. Omar bin Musa, who um, at the TED Sydney, the first TED Sydney, got a standing ovation um, uh, for his poem about living and growing up a Malaysian boy in Queanbeyan. The wildest thing I found out about the arsonists, the guy that's, that actually run out into the bush and start the fires, because there's not really that many naturally occurring bushfires, mm-hmm. all right? But, you know, when you have 36 all popping up within mm. a kilometre of the nearest suburb, it's men, white men. They go out, they start the fires, and they masturbate. Oh, right. That came out in the inquest of the 2002 Canberra fires where 500 houses went. They found the guys that started some of them and they found them jerking off to the, to the flames. Wow. Isn't that wild? That is kind of like I guess at least it's like, you know, well, you know, I guess somebody really gets off on that and they actually, <laughs> actually do get off on that. Wow. Yeah. It's like people who do B&E sometimes take a shit on the living room floor. What's a B&E? Break and enter. Oh. Do they do shit on the floor? They do a shit on the floor because they, they overcome, I guess, either that or overcome with the excitement or yeah, the right. desecration of the area. They're so overcome with it. It's quite common for people to come home and find their house robbed and a shit on the floor. Oh, that's so interesting. We used to, our house when I was growing up, we used to get broken into all the time. Like it doesn't, hasn't happened. My parents live in the same place. But it used to get broken into all the time. And my dad, I would always wake up and I would know that something had happened because dad would be out the front. He was always in his underwear chasing someone down the street without like, this is probably illegal, I don't know, but like our family weapon, which was just the handle of an axe. Like we just had this handle of an axe that just lived on the floor just for the purpose of when somebody would come in the house, dad would run down the street with an axe handle. In his underpants. In his underpants. I think, yeah, that was just part of the whole. That was his sort of superhero look. Um, and then, like. Forgot the rest of the costume, just the underpants. Yeah. And, like, in the early 90s, I don't know if you'd remember, there was, like, a, um, quite a craze, quite an interior design craze called Shabby Chic. Um, right? Good Lord. Like, it's still around. Familiar, it, right. It populates parts of that country. Like, right. So, including my parents' house, right? They're obsessed with it. They always have been. As soon as it came in, it's like they haven't moved on. Like a sign that says, gone to beach. Right. Exactly. 
So, of course, when they started to shabby chic everything, that included the axe handle. So for, <gasps> from the mid-90s, the, the chasing down the street was with not just an axe handle, but an axe handle that had been lovingly shabby chiced. So painted over and then sanded back. Yeah, and then sanded back. So it's got that, you know, rustic, what the fuck, rustic, like, whitewash. <laughs> what are you in for, mate? I did a B&E on a place out in Sydney. Oh, yeah? <laughs> How'd you get stuck? Well, this bloke came at me with his axe handle. Must have been 100 years old. <laughs> it was so aged. <laughs> well, like, it sort of looks aged all like it's like, like 10,000 pigeons done shit on it at once. Like, it's, that's the kind of vibe that you <laughs> get out of it. Okay, so let's get to it. Where did you did you grow up in the Sydney of Australia? Yeah, I did. I grew up in um, the inner west in Annandale, uh-huh. um, which is like a little pre-gentrified Annandale. Pre-gentrified Annandale, yeah. So um, basically, people might probably a good reference national reference point is like, do you remember the Some of Us? Mm-hmm. So that was like working class Balmain, and Annandale was like kind of a shitter or less interesting working class suburb next door to that where not very much happened and now it's like incredibly gentrified yeah. um like there was this little we live opposite this tiny little corner store that was always awful like one of those horrid little stores and now i went i was just there um before i came to meet you and now it's um a corner smith which is like a really fancy um cafe they have their own like uh pickling distillery or whatever you call they it do. yeah so there's been well, a massive change. At least you're able <laughs> to pick up some artisanal cheese on the way here. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very – the bread – my mother bought a loaf of bread there and she, she was too embarrassed, like, took it to the counter and then they were like, that would be $18. Get and fuck. she was like – but she was too embarrassed to put it back. So oh. she paid $18 for a loaf of bread. Oh, my God. Yeah. Apparently it was delicious. <laughs> you I mean, I better be. say that now, like, because we have to be able to go back there. Oh, so, good lord! Great bread. So, goodness. What, what was what was Annandale like? I mean, did you have to? Did you go to school next to a factory and you had to walk past a factory to get there? Yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't quite like that. It was like I lived um, very, very close to. I live opposite a little park, um, and then you know, next to the park is the school. It was just sort of a little, you know, pretty tame little suburb. There used to be a lot more, like, things I remember about it being less gentrified are probably just more general stuff like dog fights used to be a big thing. Like, there was, we'd always look out the window of our house and see two dogs just, like, mauling each other basically in a death match. Or, you know, lots more like, oh, like, you know, drunk people passed out in the park or, like, you know, stone people shooting bow and arrows right into the children's playground and that kind of thing. But that might have just been, like, a sign of the times. <laughs> I don't really know. But, um, yeah, that was that was kind of – that's the suburb I, I grew up in. And when he wasn't running down the street in his underpants, what did your dad do? Uh, like, for a living or – yeah, so he is a social worker. He worked at the family courts for um, – a very long time before that, he worked at the kids' hospital, which used to be um, uh, in Camperdown, right near where my parents lived. And when he worked there, he, he's from Wales. And when he came here um, and he started seeing my mum, my mum worked in television and this job came up for, like, head of social work at the children's hospital. But he was a bit too young to kind of go for a job like that. But they don't really like to ask your age. So my mum's friends in makeup at Channel 7 where she worked 
aged him, so they salt and peppered his hair. Shabby chic. They shabby chic his hair. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, gave him a few wrinkles and stuff. And then because he was British and, you know, back then that kind of counted. For, like, people thought he was a bit older, a bit more sophisticated, which he definitely wasn't. And they totally fell for it. And then they had to slowly phase it out. Over about six months, like undo the, the so hair. every morning he had to redo it or was it a permanent solution? Well, the, the dye I think was permanent. I have to, I should actually get the details of this a little straighter in my head. But, yeah, I'm pretty sure the dye was permanent and then, um, yeah, I'm not really sure how the rest of it went. That's fantastic. Yeah. That, that is brilliant. And yeah. did anyone at the children's hospital ever, um, well, he's being a cheeky little fucker. He's not allowed up there. Oh, isn't he? No, Frankie, you're more than welcome to push him down. Frankie, down again. Oi. Wait, that's probably... Get down. Yeah, that way. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that way, that way. Frankie, get down. <laughs> cheeky little bastard. I just tried to push Osh's dog backwards off a chair, which now I come to understand is not okay. No, it's fine. He's just being a cheeky little bastard. <laughs> um, so I'm just blown away that this sort of thing was... I don't know if you could really do that these days. Oh, yeah, I don't think so. I think that there's, you have such a, um, you know... A track, you have track marks everywhere, like yeah. on the internet and everywhere. Like it's very easy for people to roughly work out how old you are to look you up to see what you've been up to and all that sort of thing. People take you a, sorry, I'm just moving around to, to re- reduce Frank's, uh, oh, I could have done that, uh, you know, ability to, to launch his way up on the table. Um, I think people took you, took you a lot more, people took you a lot more at face value. Yeah. Back then. Yeah. So that park that you lived near, was that where the teenage drinking happened? Well, a lot of the teenage drinking and, you know, dope smoking and everything happened for us um, down where, you know, there's like a lovely, um, in the inner west to the city now, there's a tram that goes around the place. Um, And when I was growing up, that was just an abandoned train tunnel. (laughs) Sydney was, when I first moved to Sydney, it was still a working port. There was still cargo ships that would come and go. Mm -hmm. I think the last one left sometime in the the late 2000s. But cargo ships would still come and go. And it was a time before container shipping, there was actually these differently gauged railway lines that ran our cargo to and from different parts of the harbour. And one of these railway lines goes from Darling Harbour, which is where the convention centre is now, all the way up um, past Piermont through the wharfs there, all the wharfs at Piermont, uh, and then along Glebe through this fantastic tunnel underneath uh, Glebe Point Road and then out towards um, White's Bay mm-hmm. uh, Power Terminal. Mm. And there was, I can't remember if it was me, again, too much drinking, uh, I don't think I was there, but I think after, either the week before or the week after... One night after doing a late-night Channel V show called The Joint, the whole crew were down in that tunnel letting off fireworks. Yep. Yep. Well, I might have seen you there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's where – that was our little hangout. It was there um, – and I remember we used to think it was hilarious because there was all these manholes, uncovered manholes in the train tunnel and, like, you could just fall into one and it was hilarious, we thought. Um, and then we also used to hang out in, like, the little um, – like aqueducts, like the, there's like a sewage system that goes through there as well and they've got these little kind of uh, little kind of cubby things you can crawl into. 
that was um yeah so I think the thing is with my ha- uh that park was a little bit too close to you know all of half of my house had windows opening onto that park which wasn't particularly convenient for you know doing terrible naughty things with my parents right there so right. we went just a little bit further afield and and who because I I went to a I went to an all boys school so the only people that I was out drinking in parks with were just other dudes so there was a lot of air guitar and there was a lot of a cappella versions of Guns N' Roses songs. Uh, was yours a co-ed kind of uh, park drinking scenario? Uh, it was a little co-ed. I, I, my first high school was a girls' high school as well, but that wasn't very close to the place. So it was more kind of local kids. So it was kids I'd gone to primary school with, basically. So, yeah, it was, a, it was probably more girls than boys, occasionally someone's brother or the odd boy, but, yeah, mostly girls. Yeah. A quick logistical question. Mm. When boys are out in the park drinking whatever they've managed to thieve, um, they just pee against a tree. Where do girls pee when they're out park drinking? Um, their pants. <laughs> just pee their pants. Um, it depends what you found, how badly you've behaved. Um, there was actually some toilets in this in the park, so um, you know, I mean, it did involve like crawling down through a bunch of brambles and God knows what to get to them. But um, you know, so it was in the pants, maybe in a manhole. Maybe in the toilet if you could if you could make it all in the way a there. Manhole. Yeah. I can't imagine like squatting over a, a beast kind of We used to have like um I remember this one Halloween where um me and some friends had gotten quite had a few joints down in that area and we'd kind of been um like I guess not followed, like not in a creepy way, but there were some boys, some local boys kind of hanging around and they um, went to my house and they set off a small explosive under – they opened the vent on the side of our house, which was like the, like you could access from the street, and put a small explosive under our house and blew up all the lights and electricity. What? Yeah. Why? Because they were little shits. I'm pretty sure one of them's in jail now. Like I think there was some sort of – incident um but so <laughs> yeah. the axe handle didn't make it out of the house fast enough no it didn't it didn't uh, luckily i didn't know who they all were so i got them all in quite a lot of trouble but um <laughs> but yeah <laughs> but it sort of was one of those things where like on reflection like i feel like now that would be taken extremely seriously yeah. at the time we were like fucking little boy fuckheads fuck you i'm gonna get you in trouble and that was kind of the end of it it wasn't like you know Three Sydney teenagers arrested in a terrorist act. Exactly, yeah. No, he didn't get there. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, and then, oh, my gosh, so then the little coda to that, so one of them went to prison. I don't know what happened to the other one, but then the third one, when I went to my second high school, which was a co-ed high school, I was like, I'd gone from a girls' school to a co-ed school and I was kind of struggling a little bit, like, to, I hadn't really seen boys for three years properly, so I was kind of trying to sort myself out. This boy was like... Um, excuse me, do you live in a house uh, on the corner of this park? Blah, blah. I was like, yeah, and he was like, um, did some boys put an explosive device under your house, blah, 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 years ago? And I was like, yeah, and he was like, um, that was me. I just wanted to say I'm really sorry. <laughs> I was like, oh, bless. I was like, that's all right, mate. <laughs> Came to you in an act of yeah. contrition. Yeah. <laughs> that's so lovely. Yeah, well, it kind of was. But he had, he got hit by, so what's it like when you go from a, uh, what's it like when you go as a hormonal teenager from uh, an all-girls school to a co-ed school? It was very strange for me because I, like, I left, well, firstly, I went from, like, a um, 
from an all-girls school to a school that was like a performing arts high school, which in my year there was seven girls to three boys and there was a lot of gay boys in our year as well. So in terms of like it, it wasn't really the kind of insane culture shock that it could have been. Was Having, this Newtown performing arts? Yeah, yeah. So I actually um, – went for the French horn, believe it or not. That was my uh-huh. thing at the time. Yeah, I was never very good at it. But the thing with the French horn is nobody plays it. So you basically get into everything. <laughs> Little tip for anyone who wants to get their kids into a performing arts school, just give them one week's lesson on the French horn. They'll take them. They'll take them, no problem. People are just aching for that slightly misty timbre in their brass section. Definitely. They don't want the barking trumpets all the time. They want that. Yeah, it is actually, like, it's actually a beautiful instrument when not handled by me, when handled by people who are good at it. And the thing with the French horn is all orchestras have four of them. They, they are four different French horn parts in most orchestral pieces. So it's actually an, in a very underplayed and in-demand instrument. So that's you're, con- actually, you're constantly fisting it. Yeah, that's right. You're constantly fisting it. Um, yeah, so... so it's so weird. Yeah. So I remember, like, when I first went... There's something about, like, being in a girls' school, which um, actually really, like, I have no bad words to say about the girls' schools. I just was like, I need to be me. I need to go be a fucking dickhead at a performing arts school. I just had that urge at 15. But at a girls' school, probably the same as at a boys' school, like, you can just, like, whip off your clothes in the playground. No one gives a shit. Like, it's all kind of very safe and chilled out or whatever. And then, like, suddenly at a co-ed school, it's like, it's just a little bit more. I mean, obviously there were lesbians at our school and there were suddenly relationships going on. Um, at the girls' school, but, like, at a co-ed school, suddenly it felt a little bit more like there was all this kind of tension. There was all these kind of, like, you know, so many little relationships, little things that had gone on here and there. Um, And, like, I know for the first, like, few months I would just stare for, like, a minute at each toilet to make sure I was walking into the right one. That was a real strong fear I had that I was just going to walk into the boys' toilets and that was just going to be the social death of me. Um... But, yeah, I think, like, I wasn't a very, um, like, uh, I wasn't a very um, sort of, uh, like, I didn't have a lot of boyfriends when I was in high school. I wasn't really kind of that kind of person. So I sort of just more wanted to, um, you know, just do a million plays and do play my little French horn or whatever. So, yeah, it took a little while. It was definitely one of those schools where, like, um, social currency could be bought by being good at things. So I was just like, oh, I'll just be really good at drama and then I'll be popular and that'll be fine. So that was my main... All right, and that worked? Yeah, it did. It took a year. Uh-huh. I was shit when I started. I was terrible. And then I literally made a, remember making a real conscious effort to become really, like, to try really hard to be really good at it because I could tell that that's what mattered mm. in that school. Uh, had nothing to do with actually wanting to, you know, be a better craftsman or, you know, be an excellent person. I just wanted to be popular. So mm. that was my strategy. But you got in through French horn but then pivoted into drama. I did, yeah. So I'd actually had gotten in in year seven for drama and I hadn't gone because my parents had this idea. Well, I don't know if I can really blame them, but there was a sort of sense that maybe it was a real druggy school and mm. whatever, which really, I mean, it wasn't. Certainly not more than my other school or any normal public school, I guess. Um, so I kind of always slightly regretted the decision a little bit. And then, so, um, at the end of year nine, I was like, I don't think I want to go. I don't want to be here anymore. To the girls' school. Yeah. And then they let you go. They let me go. Yeah. Wow. Did you have to audition again? I actually didn't because, um, I had, 
the one of the main music teachers at the school was a French horn player. Oh yes. Yeah, so it was like um definitely probably pretty actually I can't I can't really remember exactly what the process was. I think I probably had to demonstrate some menial I mean, how good is anyone at the French horn when they're fourteen? Like I mean, probably some people are very good. I shouldn't Can say that. Can you play it? Great. Yeah. Come in. <laughs> Basically. Can I'd... you play it well? Meh. Yeah, that's my memory of it. <laughs> What's it like being told at that age to be actually given permission to go ahead, be dramatic, go ahead, be oddly creative? Um, you mean like by my parents? No, or... by the teachers, by people who aren't your parents. Yeah. By in this, being in this environment, being given the permission to behave and like this is okay, it's okay to, to put on a beret and, yeah. you know, talk about Trotsky. Yeah, yeah, totally. I guess um, I guess for me I never really, I kind of had that classic thing people get the shits about with Gen Y, even though I've only recently learned, I think I'm technically like the oldest year of Gen Y. Like I'm born in 84 and I think that's like allegedly the very, very beginning. But I have that thing of like I've kind of never really been, I've never really thought, thought things were going to be hard or impossible. And I think that when you're at school, because drama and music are just subjects as well as anything else. So you can just study them at any, well, a lot of schools alongside math, English, blah, blah, blah. I just kind of thought of them in the same way, except that um, at a performing arts school, it's all about the other stuff you do on top of that. So then you do get into the musical that year. Are you going to do a play and like you do these ridiculous plays that obviously, you know, the teachers love for some reason, like insane absurdist pieces that no one understands that are like way too inappropriate to have 15 year olds doing, but whatever, it's just how it is. Um, But I guess like, yeah, I guess I never really thought at the time um, of it as having received permission to do it. It was just like, it was just something that I enjoyed doing and that I thought, I was good at um, in the way that other people might be good at maths or something like that. Did it put a distance between you and the tunnel drinkers? Oh, God, no. Newtown was full of tunnel drinkers. Like, who, <laughs> like they had their own tunnels in Newtown. <laughs> like, it was fine. No, yeah. I mean the girls that you used to drink uh, with. Yeah, it's funny. Um, it's funny, actually. Um, I, um, I When I left that school, and it wasn't really nice school, I had a really lovely group of friends there. I kind of just left and never looked back. And actually, two weeks ago, I went to a wedding of one of those girls and I just caught up with my group of friends who I hadn't seen since 1999. And they are all, like, they're a gorgeous group of girls. They're all exactly, like, they still seem to be, from what I could tell, like an intact gang. It was really bizarre. Wow. Um, but, yeah, so at the time, I think, like, I, I found it really difficult to change schools. Like, I found that to be, I mean, it sounds so stupid now, but at the time, because I'd made the decision, no one had forced me to do it, I kind of felt this immense pressure to make it work. Yeah. Um, and also, like, I wasn't particularly socially confident. Like, I think I had a bit of a bravado, but I was, you know, a massive, like, you know, internal panicker, very paranoid, you know, like, overthinker. Um, and um, so I think I kind of needed to just sort of pretend that old world didn't exist a little bit so I could kind of mm-hmm. really try to make things work but that was just much more about sort of you know um socially kind of feeling like I've 
fit it in and, I'd, you know, I was going to make it's it It's also work. a time before Facebook and a time before on oh, your yeah. phone you were connected via Snapchat and Instagram. I see Gigi just like even though she's in high school and she's not a, she's in a different school to all the mates she was in primary school with, uh, bar one, she still mates with them all and they still see what they do each other every day. And part of me feels that when you're growing up it's okay if you want to s- never see people again. I totally think it's so fascinating, like, that you can't move on from people anymore. Yeah. You can't. And if you do, it's like I've unfriended you. Like I've done this action that somebody made up on the internet that sort of you might be aware of because you might try to see me and then it, I'll be gone or whatever. Yeah. But I do think that there's something really um, unhealthy about not being able to let people go mm. and to move on and to... Um, yeah, and it's interesting because, like, after I went to this wedding, I, of course, added all of them on Facebook right away and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, what have you been doing the last 20 years? I want to see, I want to see, I want to see. But that was kind of nice because, like, we've had almost, yeah. had, like, 18 years or something. So That's okay, though. Yeah. It's, that's okay. It's not, it's not this idea that you can't ever move on. I've, yeah. I mean, I went through about, what was it now, five years ago now, I went through a divorce and the only way to not be constantly reminded of it was to just get off Facebook completely, wow. delete, I completely wow. just unlogged out of an account and never logged back in Yeah, and started a new one Yeah, and then selectively picked people that I could yeah. be friends with and not be constantly, because at the time I was getting triggered left and right yeah. and I didn't want to see, you know, things popping up in a news feed and, and now I don't even, I don't even have Facebook man. Yeah, and it's fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like... um. And then also Facebook can be back because I'm not very – I'm actually not addicted to Facebook at all. Like I don't sit there on it at work or anything like that. But it does mean I do miss a lot of things and in a, in a way where it's like, oh, I forgot I didn't go to your birthday party because I actually didn't see it. Yeah. Like as in I completely passed me by. Yeah. There's like 400 events there. I don't give a shit. I also find something that I find very strange is I often will get – I actually don't get invited to a million parties or anything like that. But like I'll often get invited to a party where I'll be like – the person hosting that party will be genuinely shocked if I show up. Like, you don't know me. Like, I haven't, I've met you once or I haven't seen you in 10 years. You don't really want me to come. I'm sure you don't really want me to come. Why are we doing this? You what just is hit this? select all on the yeah. invitation. Yeah, and imagine if I showed up and it was like, oh, yeah, it's me. You invited me to your party. That was weird. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, exactly. I'm so stoked I could be a part of this. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Wild. Mm. So after after high school, as high school's drawing to a close, mm. what are you thinking your next moves are going to be? I really, when I was in high school, I lo- like I, I did I did keep playing the French horn, and I actually um, I taught the French horn, I taught brass instruments, I it taught in schools and stuff. But I did really, really, really think I was going to be like Kate Blanchett. Like I thought I was an amazing actor, and I thought that's what I was going to do like theatre or film or whatever, I thought I was going to be a serious actress. And I think what happened, which is interesting for me, is um, I, I auditioned for NIDA when I first left school and I got very close. I got down, like, I don't even know what it was, but there was a million auditions. Um, and then it was almost at the point where they were, like, going to take half of us and not the other half. Oh. Um, and like to for the class of like 10 or whatever the hell it is and they didn't take me and like they said I was too young they were like look you're only 18 come back next year and I was just like 
fuck you. Yeah, you don't want to hear that, do you? But, yeah, and, like, one thing they'd said to us over and over again, which, like, kind of actually was a bit of a light bulb for me, was, like, in these situations they were like, if you want to make it in this industry, you need to be able to make your own work. Work, Make work for yourself. Like, you can come here, you spend three years here, you'll think you're king shit, then you'll get an agent maybe and then you'll just be auditioning for stuff for the rest of your life and you'll have no idea. But if you really want to make it work, consider whether or not you're the type of person who can make your own work. And I was like, yeah, I think I am the type of person who can make my own work. And I always did like writing. I didn't do that much of it in school. Like that was something I really started doing a lot more when I got to university. But that was something that really stuck with me and that has definitely been like intentionally or otherwise hugely important for for me in my career after that. So did you get in? No. What did you go and do? So I went to Sydney Uni and I did um, like a degree that I don't even know if it exists anymore. It's called a Bachelor of Liberal Studies, which is like basically a sort of condensed art science degree that seems to take about the same amount of time as getting two degrees, an arts degree and a science degree. And it was like, you had to do an arts major, a science major. You had to do some maths. You had to do a language. It was kind of like just like a big, broad, classical degree. So I did psychology and French and English, and I cheated in maths because um, I had to do one class, and it was like the easiest course imaginable. It was statistics that was deemed so easy. It was technically in the arts faculty, <laughs> this particular course, and I fucking sucked so much, and I got a clean 50 for it. And I was just so relieved that I didn't have to do it again. Um, but yeah, when I was at Sydney uni, um, like the main, I think the main recommendation of Sydney uni is like the kind of campusy stuff. Like there's lots of cool, you can find your little, your little freaks that are like you who want to do the same sort of stuff as you. And like, I'm like, Hey, I know some tunnels nearby. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Like they're very close. Totally. So I took everyone down to the tunnel and like I killed them. So (laughs) there were trains running through there by then. And then that's when I started my cult. Um, (laughs) yeah, but I guess, so I got quite involved in like, um, the little theater at Sydney uni and, um, that was a very funny little place. Um, and, um, that's where I kind of started like writing my own little plays and, you know, kind of trying to be in charge of things a little bit. What was the first play that you remember putting on? Um, Okay, so (laughs) the first play I was in was like, so SUDS, the Sydney New Dramatic Society, is like the oldest continuous dramatic society in Australia. And this play is deemed by many to be the worst play that has ever been put on in the entire history of the society, of a community theatre, so you can only imagine how bad. It was an adaptation. Okay, just to be really clear, I did not write this. I had, I was just in it. It was an adaptation of a Terry Pratchett novel um, and it was so long. Like, it was, we, it had, like, it had, honestly, like, 45 characters. It went through a million different times and spaces and there was just this, like, crazy adaptation that this guy who obviously loved him so much had had done. It was called Jingo. That's what it was called. And, um, As and in by G, by Jingo. I guess so. I don't know what it meant. And um, then, like, the day before we went on was the first time the entire cast were together. 
and um, we were introducing ourselves like we'd never met. We did a dress rehearsal, got to the point where the play had been running for six hours. Oh, fuck. And it was, like, not even close. Not even close. So I was like, right, come to my house. We're going to smash this play in half at least or, like, by – and I just sat there and I was like, is this scene important? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. So what I did in effect was make it make no sense. Like it made very, very, very little sense. Was that John Dramaturge? Is that the name of the – I think so. I yeah. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd self-proclaimed yeah. and the director was fine with this? Well, it was sort of like, I mean, somebody had to do something. Was my solution perfect? No. <laughs> but someone had to step up. Did you have any idea about act structure or story arcs at this point? Oh, I, honestly, I didn't even know what my character was. I was like the – Queen or the mayor, I don't even know. There was characters that were like, one of them was an alarm clock that lived in another dimension, but because that part had been cut out, the dimension had been cut out, but the clock was still there. It was, anyway, it was it was amazingly bad, but it's where I met all of my friends. I met, my, um, so my, my now husband was in that play and um, my other, um, one of, probably lots of people who do Story Club, which you know, um, were all in it. Um, yeah, some of my, like, two, oh, like, I'm going away this weekend with two of my dearest friends who are both in it, who I both met um, during that. So it was actually this, like, and it was kind of like that thing of, like, you know, when everyone together goes through, like, a horrific experience, <laughs> it's a real, like, um, binding, yeah. um, bonding experience. So, um yeah, so I have no regrets about doing that play, but it definitely was, like, the worst play possibly that's ever been put on in the world. It was really fucking bad. I wish I had a video of it. But look what it gave you. I know. It was, it's pretty amazing. Because if there's one thing that I've found again and again and again on this show is that people who found a way to centre their lives around the thing they, were, they love to do, yeah. basically, some of them are lucky enough to even get paid to do what they love to do. Yeah. They are surrounded by... This group of people that they move through time with. Yeah. And as an adult, I didn't figure that out until way later. I honestly didn't figure this out until maybe uh, until after my divorce, until years after, maybe only two or three years ago did I figure this out when I started this podcast. And I started hearing time and time and again, I was like, oh, well, of course you found success because when you needed a camera person, the person that is your friend knows a camera person and or, or you needed financing for this person, someone else's, you know, uncle could sort you out with that. And, like, understanding how all that shit worked, for, so for whatever reason, I didn't really have that grasp on society. I don't know why I was a weird mm. kid. Uh, but to, for, to hear this about you makes me very happy. So you – this idea that they told you at NIDA, if you want to be successful in this industry, you've got to create things – for yourself, mm. I, 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 and they're, they're right. Um, Nell Schofield uh, told me about uh, that. You know, at night they put this half-hour play together. It was her and Baz Luhrmann and a few other mates, Strictly Ballroom. Yeah, they they put that together, and yeah. look what it's become. Yeah, and the idea that if you want to, that you have to just be creating your own thing, that isn't told enough to people. And I wish it was told more and more because I was still brought up at the time with the idea that if you, if you can appease the gatekeepers, you will have a career. If you mm. can get the record deal, everything will be fine. If you can get yourself on the telly, everything will be fine. But luckily for you, you were taught, and the industry must have changed enough by that point, you were taught that the gatekeepers won't matter anymore. You have to create it yourself. Yeah. So 
if you can create it yourself, you'll be fine. Just keep making it yourself. Yeah, and also I think to a degree, like the gatekeepers won't necessarily be your friends. No. Like you can become a gatekeeper if you just make something worthy. And then – and it's a funny thing that's happened with – um with so, – so another thing that came out of uni was Story Club, which is a um, – like a story, a live storytelling night, also a podcast – um, that we started, I started with those people, like who were in this play and did other stuff. Um, and part of the reason, it was always pretty good. Like I think it was always very good. And part of the reason was because we were so competitive with each other. It was like, I'm going to be fucking better than you tonight. And we used to be so critical of each other. Like now I think about it, we're not like that at all anymore. But like it's just sort of a younger, like we, we were so, we'd sit there at the pub afterwards, we'd analyse the shit out of every story. We'd be like, what would you have done better in my story? What would I have done better in your story? You know, what's like, and we actually kind of, in this really brutal, informal way, I think really um, learnt a lot about what good storytelling practice is. And a big part of it was learning like, you have to give something of yourself away a little bit. And if you do that, people will kind of, and then that's why things started to get insane. Like people started to just share so much and, and people loved it. And we kind of learnt just through trial and error and being really mean to each other, um, how to kind of do this. And at the time it was just like, like, I don't even know why we were doing it. I think, I mean, what was interesting is no one came like by no one. I mean, 20 people would come. They'd mostly be my parents. We were all drunk. It was really fun, but it wasn't, you know, we charged five bucks. It was what it was. But I enjoyed doing it then just as much as I do now, if not more, because it was sort of all we were doing that was kind of creative and fun and it was ours. And then when people started asking me, how did you get involved in Story Club? How did you do that? How do you get involved? I was like, I'm a fucking gatekeeper now. Oh. I accidentally did that. Yeah. Like I was like, oh, my God, this is, a, this is an entity that – exists that people don't think is a random night that I started with my drunk friend and they are asking me how to navigate their way in. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what that means about making your own stuff and becoming, you know, that that part of the industry. Wow. Mm. So exciting that yeah. you were able to put that together and that, and that what it did for you as well and that while – you may not have had a chance to go to Zanata, you had a far more exciting and I'm going to say possibly practical lesson in yeah. stagecraft, in, uh, in story beats, in writing, in because, I mean, I had to go to Los Angeles and take a course in how to write stories. All right. I also did a Master's of Creative Writing. I should mention that as well. All right, well. well, that also helps. <laughs> but that also, but, but, telling, a story, yeah. but telling, telling a story live you really you're playing with a finite resource, and mm. that is an attention span. Mm. You are playing with a. You've got about twenty minutes tops. God, yeah, tops, tops. yeah, yeah. At the top end, drinking twelve, yeah. maybe ten, yeah. And if you don't have them in the first line, fuck it, people are going to get a drink, yeah. And that's it. Totally. So it, it, if but that then filters down to when you want to put stuff on TV and like. I'm going to put it to you. There's no way you'd be writing the way you do now on the checkout had you not had hundreds of hours of experience standing on stage in front of drunkards. I totally don't dispute that at all. I think that's very, very true. Yeah. And it's also because it's like when you um, – and for me it was interesting going from one to the other, going from Story Club to stuff like the checkout because with Story Club it was like 
A, I could do whatever I wanted. And some of my early stuff is actually the more experimental things I've ever written because I was like, well, I don't give a fuck. I was like, I don't even know who's watching. No one's going to hear this. It's not being recorded. I may as well just have fun and see what happens. And, in fact, the first story I ever did at Story Club is still the one people always talk about when they mention one of my stories. It's a story I wrote from my grandmother's perspective about how much she hates my grandfather. Um, and for whatever reason, I just hit on a voice and it just, like, it just sings. It just really worked. And I, I swear I've never written anything that good. And the first thing I ever wrote for it. But, like, these were all, like, they're very personal stories. I can be as florid and stupid as I want. I can play with language. I can, you know, experiment, blah, blah, blah. And then when you move to TV, it's like, no, no. <laughs> like, you have a job. You, the, your first job, or on the checkout anyway, is to be informative, is to make a good point for a particular audience. Then you have to be funny. But then you've got to also, like, my first checkout scripts were, like, you know, like characters had backstories, like it was ridiculous. And it was like, took me a good year or so to learn really, really how to actually be like, oh, how to be a working writer. And I'm writing, this isn't, no, is this what I would write in my dream world if I just sat down, you know, and just wrote what came out of my head? No, it's not. But it's an amazing job. And it's amazing to learn how to transfer your skills to something when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's somebody else's baby. What's it? How did you find those people? How did they find you? Oh, By yeah, those so people, I mean the, the chaser. Yeah, so it's interesting. So, um, you know, you were saying how, like, everyone is kind of connected and that's yeah. how these little societies work. It was a little bit like that. So obviously the chaser are, well, not obviously, but the chaser are Sydney uni boys. And um, we met uh, one of them. So Dom Knight, um, I, when I was at UTS doing a master's of creative writing, I was also editing their anthology and people wanted him to speak at, our launch because he was from UTS as well and he'd just written a book and so I asked him about that and he said yes and he was really nice and then he came along and did Story Club and then Chris Taylor did Story Club and then when the Chaser had an event at um, the at the Writers Festival they kind of had this knowledge of Story Club and they wanted a little something to add to the end of the conversation they were like why don't you and Ben, who I run Story Club with, who also works on the checkout, why don't you and Ben come and tell two stories and one of them will be a true story and one of them will be a lie and the audience can guess which one's which. And so I was like, okay, I have to nail this. Like I have to, I have to do really well. And I remember kind of being conscious of the fact that that might be 
a game changer yeah. if I if I nailed it. Um, and sure enough, after that, they gave Ben a job, and then a bit later on, they gave me a job as well. And our jobs were watching the news and just trying to find things that we thought were funny. Oh, you were the, in, the, in the logger? Logger, In the logger yeah, world, we yeah. We were in the logosphere. I've had tell me about that. Yeah, okay, nah. so we were in the logosphere and like... Um, so, but hang on, just for people listening. Um, oh, sorry. So basically, <laughs> whenever you watch a show like uh, The Daily Show or The Weekly with Charlie Pickering or, or any kind of news satire show where they throw to a clip of... And this is what Tony Abbott said, or this is Malcolm Turnbull in 2006. This is Malcolm Turnbull in 2016. Someone has had to go and actually watch that shit yeah. for hours and 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 log the time code as in at three hours, two minutes, 14 seconds and 15 frames, he flicks his hair in a certain way and at 27 frames it stops. And that's it. That's what you have to write down. And then you just put it on an Excel spreadsheet somewhere and go, hair flicks. And, and then, so when they're looking for a hair flick, that's where they find it. And it's, it, 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 it can be meaningless, but you're just looking for anything. And particularly with Chaser, um, rather than terms of phrase, which can be found by um, uh, uh, software. transcription software yeah. that can just trawl every time Donald Trump said the word Mexicans, that's how you get those great supercuts of Mexicans, Mexicans, China, 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 China. You're actually looking for physicality, which in Chaser world is where they find their gag. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking to find what's what you find funny. And I'm guessing what they have told you. Look for things like this that look physically weird. Yeah, that's right. So they that's exactly how it works. And they'll. But the thing is, it's all about forecasting because it's like if you see a hair flick and you're like, I wonder if he's gonna do that again. And it's like it's so easy to logging is so passive because you're sitting there and watching. And the amount of times that I don't tell Chaz, but the amount of times that I'll be like okay, I did not watch that. I've been sitting here staring into space for an hour, but I have not in any way attended at the level required Mm. to actually capture everything and you've got to go back and do Mm. it again because then it's also so mortifying if you miss something. If someone's like, Mm. did you see that thing on 7.30 and that's in your allocation and you haven't done it. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, and it's also, so it's about finding what, they think is funny, also trying to kind of be like, I think this is funny and this is why, and if you put this and this together, I think we could build um, something funny. But when you talk about, like, the transcription software, just for the record, we only got that, like, two years ago. Right. So before that, when we ever found things, if we ever had a supercut that had phrases, they were all actually just found. Yeah. And it was brutal. And it's also sometimes... um, it's, like, not exactly the same phrase. It's more like they keep um, uh, referring to something in a similar way that altogether is funny, but it can be borderline impossible to search for. So you get to know programs um, really quite well. And, like, you end up in these strange worlds where, like, my favourite is watching regional news or a current affair. Like, I always try to get them in my allocation. But it's so interesting to watch like Adelaide News every night and be like, oh, there's a certain tone to this. There's a certain, like, um, themes that, that – and some of them are really depressing, like, oh, there's no jobs or there's whatever. And then you're watching Darwin News and it's like every night there's like a, someone does the catch of the day and wins like a special hat or whatever. Yeah. And it's really gorgeous to kind of watch them all and yeah. get, you know, a little snapshot of how things are different, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was our first job was was – logging and it's it's actually i really like it like Chaz describes it as scooping the ocean yeah because it's like you just get what you get you get what you get and that's 
that is what it is. If it's not there, it's not there. Yeah. But you try not to zone out and miss it. But it does, <laughs> though, it gives you, it is, in many ways, I'm, I, and I really have to thank you because it was my absolute dream of dream of dreams to have anything at all ever to do with anything that they had touched, all right? And I had through Will Kate, DJ Goodwill is actually great mates with Dom Knight. I actually managed to get Dom on this podcast in an early episode. And then I told him, I said, mate, I'd do anything to be a part of your universe, anything. <laughs> and that's when he sent that email to you. Say, you should get in my story club. And so that you have allowed me to come into this universe. Can I say, um, like, no, I don't want to disparage Dom. I didn't get an email from no, Dom. What no, happened with me? I was watching The Bachelor and I was like, I bet he'd fucking kill Story Club. <laughs> and I just messaged you on Twitter. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I messaged you out of the blue on Twitter and I was like, I was like, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. I'll see what happens. And I was like, like you were following me on Twitter and I couldn't believe I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I don't know why that happened. Because you're funny. And then I, I just asked you and you wrote back in, I swear to God, like under a minute. And you were like, I'd love to. And I was like, <gasps> I was like, Ben, I'm really drunk and I just messaged Osher on Twitter and he said he's going to do it. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's it, it just has given me just to, and I still can't even bear to say more than three words to Jules because he'll be there. He'll be at an event. I'm like, oh, hi, Jules. <laughs> I'm just so scared to say hello to him. So I'm just in such awe of what, you know, of what it is those guys do. Yeah. And, and what I really love about what they do is they have set up a situation where um, they are bringing up young writers and young performers in a, in a mentoring way. It is really amazing. And, it's, I mean, I think for me the thing is like another thing that I kind of have learned from this experience working with them is like not in a million years did I think I was going to be involved in satire. Not in a million years. It had not crossed my mind at all. I, like I say, I thought I was going to be Kate Blanchett or write really serious, you know, Beckett-esque plays or something like that. Um, but like to be given that opportunity where they like, and it was pretty clear from the beginning that like, if I didn't fuck this up, they were probably going to keep me on and let me learn. And like, you know, it was such an amazing training process of like just letting the rope out slowly, 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 making sure like I was only, you know, going at the, the going at a pace, which was responsible, I suppose, and making sure that I was kind of trained properly in this weird thing that they do. And it was just like, you know, just such amazing, like I'm so thankful that they they took that chance on me for fucking some reason because I read a story about my grandmother. Like, you know, <laughs> like I certainly never, nothing I ever did suggested that I'd be any good at, you know, like watching the news for 10 hours and being really nitpicky and um, finding things. So... Yeah. Watching that much current affair, does it make you feel less – I mean, I can't watch it for 10 minutes, let alone 10 hours. Does you, do, you, do you fear for – what does it tell you about what Australia and the people that particularly watch that show? I don't know. What, what do you feel about the majority – I mean, let's be honest. You mm. and I are – if there's a bell curve of the Australian population, there's this weird on one end – kind of semi-lefty about some things but strangely right about other things, fucking vegan that changed his name after, an, you know, an inspiration from a Kabbalist who lived overseas <laughs> and came back and, 
you know, <laughs> fucking doesn't drink and all kinds of weird shit. And there's you, girl from the inner city of Sydney who went to a drama school <laughs> and, you know, we don't live in the suburbs. You no. know, we are people that don't exist in mainstream Australia. Yeah. When you think about mainstream Australia and what they're being fed, what do you what do you think? Uh, I think it's interesting and I actually think the checkout is the good version of a current affair. Like that's what I think the checkout is. It serves that purpose of being like we're actually we've got your back. We're looking at what these genuine problems are and we're going to try to solve them as best we can. And to that end, I will say I do have some respect for a current affair reporters. Hear me out because what they do is so ballsy. Like running after people in the streets or running away from people. Like it's really, it's super confrontational. It's super in your face. It's not responsible or good or worthy or needs to exist. But just having recently had my own experience doing stunts with the chaser, which is like the most insanely, like insane thing I've ever done. I kind of just garnered this new respect for those reporters because I'm like, that's basically what you're doing all the time. I mean, the problem is it's like half the time it's with just regular citizens and they don't, they're, they're not good targets. They're not, well, no one's learning anything. It's not, it's not good stuff, but it's still, a, a I think it would be a very, very, very difficult job. And I also always have to just check myself of like, I got lucky, like I got discovered or nurtured by the good guys who are, you know, doing the Lord's work, doing the right thing on the side of people, working at auntie, everything's all very ethical, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what would have happened if somebody called me and they're like, we'll give you six figures to be a current affair reporter when I was 20. I actually don't know. Right. Um, and so... You're going to another country, you're going to go capture a kid. Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, oh, cool. <laughs> Sounds great. Trust me, it's all above board. It's brilliant. We've got some, an agency. They've done it heaps of times. It'll be fine. Yeah. Next like, thing you know, you're in a Lebanese prison. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, like, I find it, like, I just try not to be too judgmental of the people who work on them because I just think, like, I know that I have been lucky and I genuinely, like, nowadays it's different. It's like, well, I wouldn't do an ad because I'd ruin my career and I yeah. don't want to and blah, blah, blah. But I, I, but we're talking about the people that work on them. I was asking you about what it is when you look at the things that are made for this particular part of Australia. Yeah. That a part of Australia that you or I aren't really in. Yeah. What do you think about that part of Australia? Do you think they're, they're smarter than, them being, than what they're being fed? Do you think you, you worry about a future? I think um, it's very easy to... Um, be indoctrinated by what you're watching to the point where, like, if I have to watch Sky News for, you know, like 10 hours a day for three weeks, I start to be like, is that a reasonable point? No, it's not. Like, can't, you know. <laughs> like, and I think that um, it is obviously, um, I think it's a shame that um, that these shows are as popular as they are. They're so incredibly popular. Like, they're, you know, upwards, like, approaching a million people an episode sometimes, like, you know, in, in Bachelor World ratings sometimes. Um, and it is, it, it is sort of sad. I guess, um, you know, I, I also do try to be open-minded about why people think the way they do. And I do think that sometimes, like, um you know, if you come from a certain socioeconomic background or you have a certain upbringing or you don't, you know, like we're talking about, oh, I'm mixed in circles where there happens to be a cameraman, happens to be a whatever. Like, lucky for us, you know, like not everyone lives in a world where they're, where they're challenged and um, 
or where they are constantly, like I feel like, you know, on my Facebook feed, I'm constantly being asked to reevaluate what I, what I think, what words are okay to use. I got in trouble for using the word lame the other day. And I was like, fuck, I can't, you know, and it, when, once you start to feel like, oh, I'm not keeping up anymore a little bit with what's acceptable and what's not and what's offensive and what's not. And as soon as you have that moment where you're like, oh, I can fuck this up too, I start to sort of feel a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit of empathy. But having said that, I know that's not really what you're asking. I think it's a fucking shame that those things are, you know, like those shows are pretty bad a lot of the time. Are they massive because um, there's no alternative? Uh, well, there is an al- there is alternatives. I mean, I guess with the current affair... I feel like I don't – I feel like a current affair, it might, like – they do have some pretty amazing – like, historically, I've seen some amazingly racist stories on a current affair, like the, you know, the the Great Wall of China supermarket or something, or, like, China – it's mainly China. They seem yeah. to just have a lot of issues with China for some reason. Um, but, like, having said that, other than that, I feel like a lot of it is just basically entertainment. It's like – you know, a crazy old person who's being exploited by current affair because they're angry at their neighbour and they, you know, a lot of it is neighbourhood stuff and it's very, you know, like a lot of it is probably relatively harmless. And I think some people do get, you know, like I saw one story where, you know, it was a woman whose, like, husband had passed away when she was about to have a baby and her other son had Down syndrome and the current affair did a story on it and they just raised, like, half a million dollars for her in, like, two days. I'm like, well, you know what? That's fucking great. Like, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I've watched too much of it to give you a simple right. answer. No, no, that's, that's okay. No, no, that, that's fine. That's fine. So can we talk about that stunt? The, yeah. What happened? David David Lon, Lonheim, is that his last name? Yeah, who gives a fuck? Probably. Well, no, it's Lionhelm. It's Lionhelm. Lionhelm. Senator, sitting Senator David Lionhelm. Uh, basically, in Australia, there's these uh, camper vans where, which backpackers rent and there's very interesting artwork on the side and increasingly <laughs> explicit, sexist, uh, misogynistic graffiti on, on the side of these things. And... Sitting Senator David Lionhelm said, if you don't laugh at this stuff, you need to... He said, anyone who doesn't find this funny is a wowzer and that you need to have a sophisticated sense of humour to really understand them. Mm-hmm. And there were things like... Um, I'm as happy as a woman with a cock in her mouth. I want to see Jenny tied up in the boot of my car. Um... You know, driving around neighborhoods, driving around neighborhoods, and actually, it's not just in Australia. I learned when we were doing this stunt, they are actually there's a, you can get one of those bad boys anywhere you want, yeah, or in various other countries. I think I, t- I, think I took one in LA once, <laughs> uh, but I didn't have that business written on the side. But the stunt was you grabbed some of the you grabbed a similar van, you painted it, and you just replaced woman with David Lionhelm's yep. name. And that's it, otherwise, verbatim. We just, yeah, we took the exact slogans, we just, we took the exact artworks um, and just, and like, just FYI, we, it, we didn't paint the van because we couldn't actually drive that around Sydney. So there were giant magnets that we stuck on the van. But um, yeah, basically we took um, these sort of, these slogans that he thinks are very funny and very sophisticated and we just, all we did was replace any female pronoun with 
David Lionhelm. Mm. And we took it to his house. And what were you go- what was going through your mind as you started this? Well, it was like six in the morning and I was just like, honestly, like I was with Kirsten, um, we did it together, and I honestly thought like when you do a stunt, you kind of prepare for various options. You almost actually script it and then you're like, oh, obviously it all goes out the window and whatever happens, happens, and you just get what you get. Mm. But because um, – so David so David Leinhelm is a libertarian. Um, he's pro-gun. He's pro-freedom f- uh, of terrible speech or whatever. Like he's that kind of a guy. Um, and we actually – I genuinely thought he wouldn't bite. I thought he would laugh at us, maybe kind of have a bit of a joke and then – that would be it. And I thought there was a small chance he would get in the van with us and go for a ride. I actually thought, I was like, there is no way he's going to fall for this. There's no way. And um, so that's kind of what we were thinking when we, when we went there. And um, that's not what happened. (laughs) That's not what happened at all. He hated it. He just, from the get-go, he started at like 11 out of 10 in terms of how angry he was and then just basically continued apace um, while we tried to show him the van. We showed him all the all the slogans we'd made, like I'm as happy as a David Lionhelm with a cock in his mouth or um, the best thing about oral sex from David Lionhelm is five minutes of silence um, or, you know, that, that sort of thing. So we just kind of pointed them out to him and persevered through um, an extreme amount of anger coming out of this man. And, um, and But he's there physically he's there. confronting you, yeah, AC, yeah. ACA style. You were door busting with ACA's, the best of them. Did, we ACA'd the shit out of that. And then he went up onto his balcony eventually um, and started taking photos of us. Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I was like, well, fair enough. I mean, like, you know. You're filming uh, it. Yeah, we're filming it. You can do what you want. Um, and then, um, and then, so we got back to the office and it was like quarter past seven in the morning or something like that. I can't remember that time, but I was just, we were just like, what the fuck just happened? Like, what the fuck was that? And then we went up um, to, and also I was like, I don't know what we have. Like, I kind of had, like, it was so, it was by far the most confrontational thing I have ever done by a long way. And um, I kind of, we both sort of almost, like, had a bit of a blackout of, like, we were like, I don't even remember what I said. Did we get any of the lines? Did we, did we, I don't know if we've got anything usable. Like, we actually just did not know. And then we watched the footage back and we were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. We were like, we were talking in unison. We were like... It was in, we were like, this is great. This is going to be, um, yeah. And then, um, and then there was an article. He actually wrote or st- he told the telly about it and he was like. Which is the uh, right-wing Murdoch paper in town. Yeah. Uh, he was like, um, so there was an article that came out before we went to air with it and he was like two lefty hippie girls, blah, 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 didn't know who we were. Didn't do any look. The telly didn't look into it, obviously, even though they had photos of us. With the camera crew? Yeah. They had photos of me and Kirsten with a camera crew. And it's like, look, I'm not saying you should know who, like, people should know who we are. But, like, if you're the Daily Telegraph, I would have thought they might have, like, they're, they are technically a newspaper. They could have looked into it. But anyway, um, 
So that came out and we were like, oh, gosh, what's going to happen? And then it just went to air. And it was um, it was pretty, like, yeah, and the, after that, yeah, people people really enjoyed that. What was he most fucked off about? Was he fucked off about that his name was on it or that so he, he had women telling him what to do? Well, you know, I, I can't pretend to know his mind. On Twitter he said that we were really homophobic, which was so funny because he was referring to um, the best thing about oral sex from David Lionhelm is five minutes of silence. He said that was really homophobic and we were like, okay, it's not even gay. Like, do you not, your poor wife, like, do you not think, like, what the, like, how is that even, we were just gobsmacked. And he also said. Yes, David Lionhelm, a man can put his mouth on a lady part. Yeah, exactly. On a flower, like, sits on our table. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe we should bring them over to his house. Maybe. (laughs) Give him a lesson. Yeah. Um. But um, and he also said that we'd frightened that we'd frightened his wife, um, uh, which, you know, I, I'm sorry if we frightened his wife. She didn't seem frightened. She was there making like you're crazy faces at us, which was totally fair. Um, so that was his. That's what he. That's what he said. But I think that um, I think probably, and and then the other thing was he didn't. I think he had a few opportunities where he could have um, been like, all right. Fair play, or all right, you got me, or whatever. But he just wouldn't back down, and it kind of was like confirming for a lot of people that thing about you know people who talk the talk and just absolutely when it comes when you give them a tiniest nudge, they just absolutely crumble in a heap. Can't take it. Cannot take it. Like this was so literal, he could not take it. That thing he's been defending for so long, he was so offended. <laughs> so offended. He was such a wowser about it. Oh. Yeah. Where's his sophisticated sense of humour? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that was definitely probably the craziest thing I did this year. <laughs> and what's the and what was the reaction? Uh, Chaz sat here and, and he used that um that incident to make me feel less terrified about the future when he said... Oh, about the internet response. Yeah, he yeah. said of the internet response of the five hundred reply tweets. Um, there were three that mentioned your appearance. Yeah. The yeah. rest mentioned the stunt. And, and not only that. So 500 negative reply tweets, only three mentioned your appearance. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it, which was so amazing because, like, also because they had a really not a great – like, he took a photo of me and I know that he pulled through his photos and he was like, "This, I'm going to find the worst one I can. Power to him. I was filming him. He was filming me. It's fine. It's fine. But I was like, oh, God, I just know what the internet's like. And I've never really experienced anything particularly. I mean, you get the odd thing, obviously, like, you know, and sometimes getting negative feedback is like, oh, that means people are watching. Like often mm. with the checkout, we find if we get a few negative tweets, it's like that actually usually is a good sign for our ratings next yeah. day. Oh, yeah. That there's enough people watching that even the ones who don't really love the show are watching. Um, but, yeah, Chaz pointed that out to me as well because, like, it hadn't really, like, hadn't really occurred to me that it was going to happen until – it was so obvious that, like, oh, my God, I'm going to die on a, on a cloud of, like, you know, I'm going to die under a, mm. you know, avalanche of, like, meanness. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was so minimal. And one of them was his ex-advisor, um, <laughs> who's a woman. And I was like, all right, bitch, fine. Ah. That's how you want to be. That's how you want to be. Like, that's how you want to conduct yourself. That's fine. Um, but, yeah, that was... Yeah, he definitely mentioned that to me. He was like, this is a moment of 
you know. I think also, though, it was such a gotcha. Like, we yeah. got him so good that I think that also curbed the negative response a little bit because there was actually, for an intelligent analytical person who disagreed with what – and I think it's fair enough people to be like, you know what, that was awful, that was really ugly, that was gross. That's fair. But for people who really assessed the entire situation, his platform, his response, what we did, blah, 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 it was quite difficult to formulate an argument that really took down what we did. I, if there is, I certainly haven't seen it. Yeah. I'd be curious to see it. So I think that kind of helped shield me a little bit yeah. um, from some of it. But, yeah. Three. So you had a point. Yeah, exactly. We had a point. Um, you weren't yeah. just like running up to someone in a formal protest and throwing paint on them and then running away. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so that definitely, um, yeah, that was nice that there wasn't um, a really shitty avalanche of, <laughs> you know, of hate. Does it, did it spurn you on? Did it make you think, what else can I do? It was interesting. It was like I think just bef- just after that um, was when like so my husband works on the show as well and he um, so it was his idea the Lionhelm stunt um, and he did a few things after that and I think like there was a little time when I was like oh yeah I think like I think I could be a spy or I could be like a something I could I could live this crazy life where you're just waiting in cars waiting to see what happens trying to get a heads up about where people are and um. Yeah, that was actually, that was like the second last episode, I think, of the show, that um, that Lionhelm stunt. Um, but after that, yeah, my husband and a couple of other people went to Queensland to break into the Dutton, um, not break in, to uh, attend the Dutton um, victory party, post-election party, and like their thing was just to sneak as many boats into the party as they could um, before they eventually get an increasing in size. So, um, but like the, the operation for that was amazing because it's like, okay, we don't know where this party is. We don't know if we're going to be able to get in. We don't know how many boats we're going to be able to get in. We have to go to Queensland. Where are we going to get these boats? Like, where are we going to hide them? And they did an amazing job. Like they snuck in. They were like, how many boats? That was the theme. Like how many boats can you can get past Dutton? The point where like someone just handed him, one of the girls handed him a boat and was like, yeah, I gave you a boat. And he was like, thanks. And then it escalates and escalates and escalates. And then eventually, um, you know, they're, they're wearing this big boat. Eventually they, they get kicked out or whatever. But, like, you do get a little high on it after a while. But now that it's done, I'm like, you know, if I never did anything like that again, that probably would be okay. I do have a little bit of, like, a gray streak, which I swear to God I didn't have before, uh-huh. um, before we did that show. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just like a... It's it's very hard to be that constantly on the precipice of doing something completely insane, um, especially because some of the stunts nowadays, depending on what you're doing, if you're going to a press conference, if you're going to a walk-in or whatever, you might be on TV while you're doing the stunt and you don't know how those seven people are going to capture what you're doing and what their interpretation is going to be. And you absolutely can't tell them what to do because you're the one being a dickhead. So it's this very, like, bizarre sort of thing. And you never knew when it was going to happen. And I think because the Chaser guys, A, like we were saying before, you know, they're very nurturing. They want to nurture everyone. And I think doing stunts was, like, such a big part of becoming a part of that legacy and learning how to do that ridiculous thing. But also people don't know who we are. So it's much easier. 
And it's also, in some ways, I think it's easier for girls to do certain stunts um, in the sense that I think you can be quite confrontational without, like I'm five foot two. Um, I think I can be quite confrontational without seeming aggressive or like something bad is going to happen or whatever. So I think that was an interesting addition to the dynamic <laughs> for this season. Also, the Lionhelm thing would have been completely different if it was two dudes yeah. rather than two girls. It had to be two girls. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was as a way of making a point about where we as a society feel the line is with speaking about women and the discussion of women and this discussion of uh, white male privilege in our society, I felt it was a really good thing. Yeah. I felt it was a really good thing. Yeah, totally. And it might also be part of what shielded me from the internet hate was that was what it was about. Yeah. It was about is this how we are, are we happy to, are you happy to be driving along the street with, with you know, your 12-year-old in the car and it's like, what, is, what the hell is that? And what are you going to say? Like, do you want that on the streets or do you want that to fuck off? <laughs> Basically. Or at least do you not want a sitting senator to openly support it? <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. So speaking of which, I mean, what is it now? We're coming up to, oh, it's after school. Uh, so any minute now there's going to be a 12-year-old walking through that door. Cool. Uh, what, what would you say to her about, she's just her first year of high school. What would you say to her about, prepping herself for the next, let's say, five years of her life, what do you think she needs? I think that she – one. okay, I'll tell you one thing I've been thinking about recently. It's about boys. Um, Good, because I'm <laughs> fucking scared. Okay. You wait till you see her. She's tall and Audrey. Yeah, right, okay. So I realised recently that I've had people in my life in the past where I've been like, oh, I really like him. But I wouldn't, you know, I just don't like the way he treats the girls he's dating. Like he's off, like you wouldn't recommend him as a date for your, a boyfriend, for your friend or whatever. And I've recently decided that if somebody is that shit with women who they're dating, that's actually too low a bar to be my friend. So I've kind of decided, (laughs) I think it's like a real deep lasting vestige of sexism. And I think it does start very, very young that it's usually boys who treat girls quite badly and girls put up with it. And I think that they shouldn't. And I think they shouldn't accept it for their friends. And I think they shouldn't accept it for themselves to the point, like quite an aggressive move. But I'm like, I don't think you should consider that an appropriate quality in a friend. They better have some other really great qualities if that's a thing they generally do. Just by way of trying to flush this out because, and it's not, I'm not blaming the boys for it. I think it's just an accepted thing that, like, you kind of just treat girls badly. I don't know if girls can do the same thing as well. But I think that um, that's just something I've decided at 32, that I'm like, I don't want to be friends with boys who are not capable of being nice to girls that they're dating. I don't think that's okay. And what does not being nice look like? Well, I think it's um, being... You don't have to name names. No, yeah, uh, like, <laughs> exactly. I think it's like um, being manipulative... Knowing that you're, um, I don't know. Like it's it's a hard it's a hard one. I think that I think girls put up with a lot from boys sometimes, and I think that I think that we can do a little bit better. I'm not talking about like I'm not talking about violence. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm just talking about general respect and behaviour. And I think I think that's something that girls should be aware of just to be a bit more a bit more like discerning about like is it hot that that person 
said they were going to call me and they never did. And then I'm still going to, you know, fall for them again if it comes back around or whatever. I just think, yeah, I mean, that's Gigi probably doesn't need that advice. What else? What does what does Gigi like to do? Dance? Uh, she likes to dance. She likes to uh, make a lot of how-to videos. Uh, that she, oh, yeah. That are how to bake. She's an excellent cook. Oh. We do a lot of dancing. That's her rhythmic gymnastics ribbon hanging up over there, which uh, she desperately loves. Um, she's a lovely kid. I think, like, I think if I was, I think being ready to embrace lots of opportunities, even if it's not what you were necessarily expecting you wanted to do. I think it's very silly to assume that you know what you want to do because you've tried one thing and that's what, that is what it is. Like there might be a million other things that you're really amazing at or that you would really love. Like I often think like if this, when, you know, the checkout's over and I'm a washed up old lady, I definitely would probably just have a complete career change. I would love to do something completely different. Like, I don't know what. That terrifies me. This is the only thing I've ever been good at. Right. Is, is but, but I mean, like, but that's because maybe that's the only thing you've really been good at. Like, you've, you've had that opportunity to be good at it, and that's awesome. But you might be really great at, you might really enjoy something else. And not be afraid of that? Well, I guess, I mean, here's what I think as well. Like, I think, like... I've had, like, I'm only 32. Um, I've had a really fun career in television. If it ended tomorrow, I'd be like, you know what? That was cool. That was really fun. You know, I I wasn't really ever expecting it to happen and it happened and maybe I'll do something else. I think about, like, my mum. My mum used to work in television she what had some cool job? jobs. So she um, she worked variously in like on um, news shows. She worked on the Willacy program um, and she um, went, like she did some cool stuff. She went with um, Spike Milligan to Charles and Diana's wedding. Holy moly. And um, her job was to get, to hook up the interview with Spike and Charles. And um, so she did. And Spike apparently just started asking all these questions about hunting and being a massive pinko and Charles canned the interview. And my mom was like my age and she was just like, oh, fuck, 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 what do I do? So I had to call back home and they were like, well, we can't change your flight so you just have to stay there until coming back in six weeks so she just stayed in London with like a Channel 7 Amex and a chauffeur <laughs> for six weeks didn't get the interview and what were they what was she gonna do with Spike Milligan for six weeks I think he went and did his own thing I think I can't I don't know what I don't know what they so you don't get to do that anymore you don't get to go but and she live. I know she described some great stuff like when you know she used to have to one of her jobs was to run with the news tape to the chopper put it in the plane so it could get to Melbourne to, for the news. So, like, the Sydney news would play and then she'd actually take the physical tape to the chopper and take it and it would go interstate somewhere else to be played um, wherever it was. Rather than satellite or yeah. rather than, wow. Yeah. And when she was at Channel 7, there were five women who worked there. That was Shit. it. And they all 
had nicknames. They were all called something tart because that's just the way it was. There were five women. So my mum's nickname is Minnie. Um, and I never, well, she's short, so I assume that was why. But it was because her full nickname was Minnie Tart. Fuck me. Because that's just how things were. Had she had mom, a lot of dates. What did your mum think of the film Anchorman? I don't know that she's seen Anchorman. <laughs> you must watch Anchorman with your mother. That's a good idea. In the You've time, met my mother, haven't you? Your mother who does the snacks. Yeah, mum who does the snacks. If you come to Story Club in Sydney, it's at the Giant Dwarf Theatre on Cleveland Street. I recommend Ubering. Parking sucks. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it does. But uh, in the forecourt, um, Zoe's mum and dad do lovely baked goods. Yeah. I can't eat any of them because they're full of eggs and, and butter and stuff. Um, so get, them, you, onto, get yeah. them onto that. Get them to bake some vegan cook, yeah, vegan totally. treats. Yeah, and I'll, sh- and I'll, I'll, I'll buy their wares. Yeah, all right. But they bag the seat at the front. They put their own little picnic blanket on it so yeah. no one nicks it. Mm. Um, and then they sit there and get humiliated by me for <laughs> ten minutes. It's, it's a good system. <laughs> I don't know why they like it. <laughs> Very confusing. What would you say, so before, I mean, we've been at it for a while. I probably need to pay at some point. Uh, what would you say to Gigi mm. about how important it is to be creating your own thing? Well, I think that, I think it is in some ways for some people an easier option because you're not at the mercy of other people. You're at your own mercy. And it is also more potentially more rewarding because you're not waiting for that one job to come around that happens to be perfect for you, that you happen to get cast in. You just do that yourself. And also you get to be a part of creating what the industry is and what people are consuming and what, you know, you get to inform you know, you were saying before, are you sad about people watching a current affair? And I'm like, I am, but I'm also proud that lots and lots and lots of people watch The Checkout. It's actually a very popular show and it's popular with kids. I get recognised more at schools than anywhere else because kids love it. They, like, hate being ripped off. They're so moral. It's gorgeous. And, like, you know, if you make your own stuff, you can inform that discussion. And you can, even if it's just in a tiny way, like, you can actually choose what your what your output is and what you're, what you're telling people about what you, what you think and how the world should be. Does it give you a sense of uh, uh, control, sense of agency? Definitely. A massive sense of control and agency. Like you can, um, you know, even to the point where it's like the, the stories that I've done on the checkout, it's like I, you know, they were my ideas. I was like, fuck, I bet there's something to this. I've looked into them and then I'm like, great, now like a million people have watched this thing about credit cards that they wouldn't have seen otherwise and that was my, that was because I decided that. Or I might be like, fuck that, I'm going to talk about stupid dog toys for 10 minutes and then people have to watch that. So it definitely does. And it also, with that kind of does come a sense of responsibility that like you develop over time where you're like, okay, now it's not just being like a puppet master. You need to be like, what... Like, are you being responsible? Are you being ethical? Are you making good decisions? Are you contributing well? And, like, when you're making your own stuff, you kind of are constantly reflecting on that and that keeps you good, especially if it's, like, going out to a massive audience and it's like, well, you better be good. Like, it better be important. Otherwise, you're just fucking wasting everyone's time. (laughs) You're literally wasting everyone's money because it's ABC. Yeah. 
you are literally wasting yeah, your money. It's like, am I wasting the country's money or not? Like, that's a nice question to, to put to yourself when you're at work. When are you taking Story Club to the Melbourne Comedy Festival? Oh, gosh. We actually, um, we've thought about going to Melbourne Comedy Festival a few times and then it kind of ends up being, um, we kind of end up always deciding we actually might be better off just going anytime. And then we never do. It's one of those things that's been on the cards for a long time and we just kind of haven't quite gotten our shit together with it. But that's a good reminder. We should credit the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Yeah, you really should. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that many people who are in town and available. Mm. And certainly if you do that's it on so true. if you do it on an off night. Yeah. Mondays. If which you do is it on a Monday. A normal night, yeah. Which is a Monday. Yeah. yeah. It'd be freaking brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, you find one of the rooms that we're standing in, have to do it four times. Yeah. You could fly in and out. You could still do your other jobs. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. You should absolutely do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's like it's – I think it's a little um, – I think logistically we've tried to think about it a few times and kind of come up against a few things. But, um, yeah, maybe we haven't tried hard enough. As a format as well. The other thing mm. I've been th- sitting here – before you go, I'm going to – as a mm. format, I would like to see you um, – uh, export that format to uh, schools. Mm. I would like you to give the format as a, you know, as a, as a production, mm. like for, for people who otherwise weren't in the theatre courses to, to work on their storytelling because good storytelling, if you can tell a good story, you're going to make the best ever pitch. Yeah. You're going to make the best sales pitch. You'll make the best PowerPoint. You'll make the, any – this is a skill you really need in life. That's really true. Like it's a very transferable skill. It really is. And it's also a manageable thing to sit down. Like with Story Club, we ask people to write 1,500-word-ish stories. Yeah. That's actually a really manageable amount of words. Yeah. And, and it's actually – because it's so simple and basic. It's like you're not thinking about production values. You're not thinking about music. You're not thinking about what you're wearing or whatever. You're just – it's like what are these – are these the best 1,500 words I can think of? Yeah. And just turning it over enough times before you're like, okay, this is a great way to tell this story. It's like how, you know, like you have that like anecdotes that you just tell all the time. I certainly do. And like I always find it's like once I've told a story like maybe five or six times, I really nail it. I'm like, oh, I've got, I've got how to tell this. And then sometimes yeah. I'll push it too far and, yeah. you know, ruin it or um, whatever. But it's kind of just like formalising yes. that process. because it it, It's just about... Can I express myself really well? Can I say boring things in an interesting way that people haven't heard before and make them think a little bit differently about stuff? And those sorts of things are important no matter what you want to do, even just for a job interview. Yeah. So I want to see you do it in high school. I want to see you export it. Well, you, are you going to roll it out for us? Are you going to like, yeah. okay, great. If you want. <laughs> Why not? I'm sure I know enough people who work in education. If not, I can find them. Yeah. I think it would be a brilliant thing that you do as a workshop at a, at a school and each, like, say if you gave it to a high school and they did one a month like you do, um, you could get one person from each faculty, you could get a teacher, you could, you could do it a charity thing and it gives kids who otherwise don't have that. I mean, how many people do you normally have on a night? Seven? Six, yeah. Six, six. That's fairly manageable. Yeah. Yeah. And also depending on, like, when we've done workshops, we often have, like, more like ten people so we get them to keep their stories quite short, which actually sometimes if you're doing it for the first time, maybe keeping it to a 1,000 words is good Pretty anyway. Good, then you yeah. can really kind of bash through them. That would be a fun night to have, like, a teacher and a kid on the same bill. Yeah. That would be super fun. Like, imagine if your teacher told a really embarrassing story. Oh, that would be so good. Yeah. I mean, it would also do a lot for morale in a school. Yeah. You know, if you had that, 
have that sort of thing or do the sort of thing you do at an assembly. Yeah. You know, that the story club happens and the best story of the night gets to do it on assembly. Yeah, <laughs> could totally. Really fun. Yeah, or the best story gets to come and do it at Story Club. Because all exactly, because all you've got to do is just read out loud. You yeah. don't have to be a particularly fantastic performer. That's right. There's something about so the way we do Story Club is we have this big comfy chair which actually probably needs replacing. Like you've sat in it recently, it's getting a bit sad. Like you kind of really your butt really sinks in, your knees are up near your face. Like it's I mean and it's it, also really stupid. It's gigantic <laughs> Patsy Bisco style. Oh Patsy Bisco. Now I'm going back. Uh, Patsy Bisco was pre Wiggles. There was uh, a lady who would oh. go on. To, she had a television kids, kids TV show. Patsy Bisco was her name. Okay, and she had the guitar and she would sing, and she would tell stories. And she had this fuck off book, like this massive tome, this massive, like the kind of books that were you need two hands to lift, mm. which is what the Story Club book is. It is. It's a really stupidly big book, and we've kind of it's all cut up inside. Like it's it's probably needs replacing. But basically we have people sit in a chair and we stick their story in the book and we have it up on an auto cue as well, sorry to ruin the magic, and people just read their stories. And there's something about because you're sitting down and you've got a book, for people watching it is very much like a bedtime story. Yeah. But they're rude and horrible and embarrassing and, you know, revealing and everything like that. But also for the people doing it, it actually is a very low pressure your hands are never going to shake because you're holding it you can't shake under that ball you can't have bad stagecraft because you just sat you can't and and yet it kind of works not that any of that was intentional like we didn't sit down and be like okay what's the least stressful way to do a performance sitting down like a lazy cunt with a book on you like we didn't sit down and think that but it actually turns out it's um it really works for a lot of people and it means i think it's helped us get people involved who wouldn't normally do comedy, which is actually like my favourite stories are from people who aren't just strictly comedians, you know, yeah. who do other things and can bring, you know, new types of stories to um, the show. But I think, um, but yeah, sit, sit down in a chair. It's a good way to get over your nerves. Yeah. Sit down. <laughs> yeah. That'd be good. And, uh, and lastly, I would really love to host one. Yeah, definitely. I really want you to host one. We actually talk about this all the time. Um, like, when are we going to get Osha to come and host one? I would love to do it in some sort of a, in some sort of capacity to, um, uh, to, to, to raise, you know, it would be fun just to do it just for fun. Yeah. However, you know, to have a, for example, when you do your Halloween show, that's always a lot of fun. Or, you know, when you put your certain themes on the show, that's mm. always a lot of fun. It'd, it'd, it'd be lovely to do, uh, a show, uh, you know, around uh, around people's uh, mental health stories. I think yeah. that'd be really fun. Yeah, because it's hilarious. Yeah, the psychosis is fucking fu- fucking funny. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> when plants start to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really good. Um, yeah, I think I think that'd be a really good idea. Well, let's do that next year. Let's do yeah. a mental health. That'd be fun. Story club. It'd be good to get like um, a storyteller, also maybe like a practitioner. Yeah. Like a like if we get a shrink or someone to come and tell a story as well. I know heaps. Funny ones, funny fuckers. Oh, mine's really interesting. He's it was the first doctor. That'd be I've amazing ever... to get Osha and his shrink on the same bill. Mm. <laughs> I don't think we could collectively afford to pay him. <laughs> yeah, right. Because he'd probably charge him individually. Um, <laughs> he was the first doctor I went to that I really needed. I was like, I was like, mm. I'm in a lot of trouble, and I really need you. But you're about seven years younger than me. It was the first time that I was Far like, out. "Yeah, 
Yeah, he was like, I think I first saw him when I was 40. And he was, well, okay, he was about 33, 34 when I, when I first saw him. He'd been practicing, wow. practicing for, for about like a year. For like four minutes, yeah. No, for about a year. Yeah. Yeah, practicing for about a year. Uh, and I was like, oh, shit, you're young, you're handsome, and you're fucking smart. <laughs> it was weird because every other doctor, I'd, you know, kind of had that either maternal or paternal thing for. It's like you, you're younger than my youngest brother. That's so funny. <laughs> my my friend once walked out of a um, was about to have like a ladies exam, and it was with a new with like his gynecologist that she hadn't met before, and he was she said he was just so gorgeous and flirty, and like they had this big laugh, and then she was like, you can't you can't look in my vagina now I need to leave and had to cancel it because she was like it had just gone too it had gotten too oh. flirty well that's his problem though he shouldn't have been on, he shouldn't have been doing any of that well he wasn't I think it was I think she was doing it and he was just being I'm sure he was very professional but um she was like no um yeah when it comes to gynecology mm. business only yeah I <laughs> my grandfather was a gynecologist I shit you not. I once was having a pap smear during which the person administering it was like You're from the checkout. <laughs> like speculum in. I was like we don't have to talk about this right now. Why are you asking me this now? Male or female? Female. Okay. Well, yeah. it's a little better. Oh, yeah, it's fine. I mean, you know, can't help it if you're a super fan, right? <laughs> Why do they call it a pap smear? Because it's the grossest name imaginable and it just really makes you want to really have one. Let me set that up in a different way. Do you know why they call it a pap smear? No, I have no idea. Because no one would go if it was called a cunt scrape. <laughs> See, I think I prefer a cunt scrape. I think I'm like, look... Scrape my con and I'm going to get a coffee. And this is what going it's, This is what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. This is what it's going to be. Yeah, but hang on. But we live in. A, let's not forget. You know, we live in a world where um, uh, a 12 year old got her um, HPV vaccine. Yeah. You know, and this is a thing that even when I was in school, I've been with women that had um, <laughs> been affected by you know mm. weird cells in their cervix and having to get lasers fired up there. I and, had that. Yeah. I had this machine. It was like 19th century level of like weird equipment. <gasps> Yeah, it was really, it was creepy. Yeah. And this gyno, God gyno's weird, this gyno was called Steve Coogan. Like the guy? I shit you not, the gyno's name was Dr. Stephen Coogan. The actor? Like the comedian, yeah. That's fantastic. Like Alan Partridge. <laughs> Alan Partridge basically gave me a cunt scrape. <laughs> Is what happened. <laughs> Goodness gracious me. Uh, this has been just nothing but lovely. Thank you for coming around for a cup of tea. Um, I hope you travel safely back to the other side of the world from where you came. Thank you. I, I would like to say I'm very pleased. I don't know what's going to be edited in and out of this podcast, but we did begin and end with vaginas. So well, that's... You know what? We all begin with vaginas. Let's not forget that. <laughs> we do. Every single one of us. Mm. Regardless of how much you like to hate women as an icky white man with a small willy, you came from a vagina. You came from a vagina, guys. Yeah. Remember that. A vagina was involved in your creation, mm -hmm. regardless of how much you hate women. That's what happens. That's so what happened. It's okay. I have to get, we have to have, oh, when I take your photo, 
I'll get you to hold the flower. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to lick that flower. Oh, look out. <laughs> All right, thank you. That was Zoe Norton Lodge. You can find her on Twitter at Zoe NL. Zoe Norton Lodge, Zoe NL. Thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you very much to everyone that supported the show on Patreon. Um, I think at this point, to talk about next week, at this point there will be an episode next week, but after that I think I might take a few weeks to enjoy kind of being married and being on holidays with my family. So I don't know if I'll be putting new episodes out over the Christmas New Year break. I might play you some forgotten ones or some older ones um, just to tide us over until everybody gets back to work. Uh, but I'll tell you more about that next week. This show is brought to you today, and it would never have happened without the wonderful help and support of the hundreds of people that have supported me on Patreon, patreon.com slash O-S-H-E-R. Uh, if you do support there for as little as five bucks a month, you get exclusive episodes and access to the new exclusive podcast feed where I will endeavour to check in more than I do here on this show just once a week. Uh, audio production on the show is from Andy Ma, whose website is andymar.com.au. Go there, get your podcast chopped up right. Get it done by Andy. He's your guy. Is that right? <laughs> Andy Ma, he's great. And my line producer was the epic Hayley Van Spagna juggling the calendars of many people to try and get us in the same room at the same time to talk. So thank you so, so much for listening. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm going to do a bit of barefoot walking out in the grass this week just to try and stay, be there. More me, less Pacific Rim. Yeah. Until I talk to you next time, if you weren't a Fitbit, because <laughs> it'll tell you the truth, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 